Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. I got a great one today, you know, for a change. And when I say that, I don't mean to disparage any of the guests we've we've had over the last four years. Some are just better than others. And frankly, there are some of these where I'm not all that hot myself. But this week, a great guest, Paul Krugman. The man is a Nobel laureate in economics. And wouldn't you know it, we're talking about economics, specifically the debt ceiling crisis. So we're talking about how and whether we're going to go over a disastrous cliff by defaulting. Paul has a number of ways to avoid that, none of them foolproof, I might add. It's uh, scary. I was in the Senate in 2011 when the Republicans pulled this shit. Of course, Obama was president. They, uh, they don't pull this shit with Republican presidents. They unanimously raised the debt ceiling three times under Trump, as did uh, the Democrats. But in 2011, Obama blinked, and we agreed to a package that cut spending in the middle of the Great Recession, in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. The agreement came at the 11th hour so late that standards and poors downgraded our treasury bonds from AAA to AA+, which uh, ended up costing us billions of dollars. But I signed on to the deal, as did every Democrat, because otherwise we would have defaulted and gone off the cliff and possibly send the worldwide recession into a worldwide depression. Well, we're not in a worldwide recession now, but going off the cliff in a month might very well do that. And I'm sure there are not a small number of Republicans in the House and maybe the Senate who would love that as long as their fingerprints aren't on it, but we really have to make sure that that this does not happen, and that's what Paul and I talk about today, so let's get to it. We got Paul Krugman, and a great one today, you know, for a change. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen, that's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Fuhrer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Fuhrer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. 
Here is a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Paul, thanks. Thanks for uh, talking about the debt ceiling. Democrats are trying to do a discharge petition in the House. You want to explain that? Okay. Yeah. Let let me say, um, I've been trying to make a list of ways we get through this, none of which actually involve making a deal with Kevin McCarthy. And have you given them to Chuck Schumer? Uh, There is a procedure. So, you know, basically... it seems likely, though not certain, that if this thing actually went to a vote on the floor of the House, that there would be five Republicans who are sane and not completely craven. We don't know that for sure, but it seems likely that there are uh, that many who, if given a straight up or down vote, shall we raise the debt ceiling, would in fact vote to raise it. Uh, but McCarthy won't let it come to the floor of the House. So there is this arcane procedure which lets you bypass the Speaker of the House and bring a bill to the floor, which would probably get us through this moment. Uh, the thing is, it requires a majority of House members to sign a petition. So you have to get five Republicans who would be willing to stick their necks out far enough to sign the petition, which is- Discharge petition. Yeah, discharge petition. And so it's uh, it's a bit of a long shot. You know, didn't four vote against the the, uh, package? Didn't it pass just by one vote? Yeah, but, you know, the substance of the the particular package is, should be irrelevant, and I think is not the point. It's probably easier if there's actually a, a vote on the bill then it's probably easier to find some vertebrates on the uh, on the Republican side of the House. But isn't it in the end, since you say it doesn't really make any difference, isn't it at the end the same thing? I mean, yeah, you would think so. But signing a petition that's being advanced by a Democrat is might be a little harder. But, you know, I have no idea whether this is, can work, but it's uh, it, it certainly I think it would be in some ways the cleanest resolution. We just sort of say, hey, you know, let's uh, let, let's have a vote. Hey, kids, let's put on a show. Let's have a vote. And the debt ceiling gets raised and end of story. That's, I think, probably what you know, Biden would like most and uh, is one of the what I think of our four routes through this. But it's probably not going to happen. How fast could that happen? I have no idea. 
There okay. is. The, the, the Democrats apparently think that it could happen fast enough. Yeah, I, as I understand, it's difficult to get one through. It's yes. Yeah. You're thinking of other other ways of doing this without going off the cliff. Yeah. So route number two, is, you know, the whole debt ceiling thing is fundamentally crazy because it allows Congress to give mandatory, contradictory instructions to the president of the United States. And on the one hand, you've passed legislation that says spend this much, tax this much. And then you have additional legislation that says, but you can't actually borrow to cover the difference if the spending is bigger than the taxes. And uh, the 14th Amendment says the full faith and credit of the United States shall not be called into question. So one possibility is that the Biden administration, or I guess it would be Janet Yellen basically as Treasury Secretary, would say, well, look, as far as I can make out this debt ceiling thing uh, is unconstitutional. My constitutional duty is to carry out the spending and taxing legislation that has been duly enacted by Congress and signed by the president. The question that comes up in my mind is who makes the final decision on that? And is it the Supreme Court? Well, it might go to the Supreme Court and maybe the Supreme Court would expedite, but maybe not. So maybe it gets tied up in litigation for years. Where? I think there's, a, there's an element in all of these things of who wants to be the person who is responsible for crashing the world economy. And that's, of course, what we're talking about. That, yeah, that explains why going over the cliff on the debt ceiling, I'm mixing metaphors, cliff and ceiling, but I know. everyone it's, knows uh, what I mean, why that is a disaster. Okay. So there, there's a, a simple story, and then, but there's, that's probably a secondary. The simple story is, well, that would force an immediate uh, you know, cut in uh, in a lot of U.S. government spending. So it'd be as if you had an abrupt, you know, massive austerity program imposed that would be kind of catastrophic. Would also disrupt the operation of the federal government, which ain't great. But the, even bigger than that, probably, is that the whole world financial system runs on U.S. Treasury bills. It's the reserve currency of the world. No, it's not the, the not strictly speaking. Reserve currency is you know governments <laughs> holding stashes of it. Now this is more about the private sector. If you're making a deal and you want to be absolutely positively certain the buyer will make good on his promise to to pay, uh, you require collateral, and the ultimate collateral, the safest thing in the world is a three-month U.S. Treasury bill. That's what people do. It's, it's Treasury bills are so critical as collateral that once in a while, we get times when interest rates on them go negative because there's a shortage and people are bidding to have them. And you know they're better than cash. If you suddenly say, okay, the, the safe asset which underpins every transaction practically that goes on, not quite, but you know, underpins a lot of what goes on in the world economy, the world financial system, the safe asset is actually now a, a, a dubious IOU that may or may not be honored, then all hell breaks loose. It, it could easily be worse than the, than, than the 2008 financial crisis. You know, this is something that you really are not supposed to mess around with, which is, of course, what, what's on the line right now. And they did this in 2011. I was there when they did that. But in 2011, uh, Obama allowed himself to be uh, to be bullied. 
to, to basically say, well, okay. right. We agreed. He agreed to sequesters and cuts and a lot of stuff. And Biden has said, I won't negotiate that stuff. But how does he do that other than with the number of ways you're talking about? Yeah, that's right. It, it, one way or another, he has to, I, I think, has to be prepared to do an end run around the debt ceiling. So, you know, unless they can get the discharge petition. But other than that, then, you know, so one end run is just to say my lawyers have advised me that my constitutional duty requires me to ignore this thing. Um, that appears to be a live possibility. That's the Yellen thing. That's, that's the 14th Amendment. Yeah, well, that's and that's why, you know, there are news stories appearing on this. And what you have to bear in mind is that this is presumably smoke signals being sent up, that they are actually uh, these are not real leaks. These are deliberate. Uh, they're 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 sending a signal to the Republicans that says, you know, we are not going to make a deal here and we're prepared to do whatever it takes to just tell you to go to hell. Uh, that we, we can we can do this. So that's 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 possibility number two. And that's uh, I mean you know, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I think the and in any case that this everything depends on in the end the Supreme Court would probably have to rule on it. And if it was just a partisan thing, you could expect the worst. But even even this Supreme Court doesn't probably doesn't want to be the people who crash the world economy. So it might, this might work. There are, unfortunately, there are a significant number of people uh, who really would actually not mind too much if terrible things happen to the economy on Biden's watch, but they don't want their fingerprints on it. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason to think that this might actually survive legal challenges. And then there are, then there are some more exotic ways of, of, of dealing with this, which are gimmicky, but then the whole situation is fundamentally gimmicky. So why not? Now, what's interesting to me is if you go back to the Trump administration, we, we had three of these, right? We had to raise the debt limit yeah. three times and every Republican voted for it and every Democrat voted for it. Yeah. As I recall. Yeah. This hasn't happened, of course, since the Obama administration. You wrote a book about arguing with zombies, and part of it was that they don't really care about debt, and history shows that. First of all, they don't really care about debt. They passed a $2 trillion tax cut under Trump. Actually, they passed, um, you know, we've had two big pieces of pandemic relief legislation, and the first one took, was in 2020. It was under Trump. Uh, that was you know a couple trillion dollars there no no questions but uh everything is different when uh when, when there's a democrat in office but they they know there's no hint at all that they care about debt and anyway if you care about debt you say okay here's my program for reducing the deficit let's get it passed through the normal legislative process you don't go and threaten to blow up the economy at, uh, unless you get what you want and I, I guess they're trying to relive 2011, where Obama caved. And so they're trying to create a game of chicken. Yeah. I, the thing is, it's, you know, both parties have changed since then. Republicans have changed. It's, it's one thing, you know, Paul Ryan was a phony, but at least pretended 
to make some sense. And, and now it's kind of the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene. But the Democrats have changed too. Uh, the trouble, I think, in 2011 was that Obama uh, himself kind of bought into the debt panic stuff. The sensible men and women. Yeah, very serious people. Very, that's what you call them, the yeah, very, very serious, serious people. people. Obama, to a certain extent, was a very serious person. And so he was actually willing to grant some merit to the, to the complaints about debt. And the current crop of Democrats, and certainly Joe Biden, who, who would have expected, but Joe Biden is, is tougher than that. And they take a look at the Republicans and say, you know, we don't give in to blackmail from these people. And, and these are pretty horrible people. And it, it, it does seem that it have to be that five Republicans step up because McCarthy is uh, surrounded by the people who finally got him elected on the, whatever ballot that was. And they're the worst. That's that's who he's given these top jobs to. Well, yeah. And in fact, I mean, what we have here is, is it's not just that. It's a party that only controls one house of Congress that's trying to dictate policy. Uh, but it's probably a minority of House members because there are surely at least five Republicans who in their hearts know that this is horrible stuff. Uh, now, whether there are five Republicans with enough courage to take a stand uh, on, on behalf of, of sanity is, is not clear. But it's definitely clear that we are talking about a, a, a minority of even House members are actually dictating this whole confrontation. The question is, I guess, are there five Republicans who believe they could survive a primary uh, in their district? We're always reluctant to talk about uh, financial terrorism or a uh, or a financial January 6th, but that's what this amounts to. This is saying that we're going to try through terror to get something that we couldn't get through the normal mechanisms of democracy. You would think that there might be five members of the House of the Republican Caucus who are prepared to lose a primary if that's what it takes to not be part of that, but I don't know. This is not a political party that is you know, normal by past standards. So, uh, how much does the House's uh, bill cut? Oh, gosh. I mean, I haven't even really looked at the details, uh, to be honest. I, I think it's $4.5 trillion. Yeah. Or but, something you know, it, like it, it, it's, it's insane stuff because especially if you, if you exclude the stuff that they know is political death to be cutting, Social Security and Medicare you know, and the military, then what's left? We're talking about just totally savage and un, un, unsustainable cuts. You're talking about basically wrecking the, the functioning of the US government. But we shouldn't be even talking about this. This shouldn't be a debate about whether the demands of the terrorists are uh, have some rationality to them because you don't give in to terrorists. You know, that's the, this is not the way we want to allow things to go. It's important to tell everybody, and I'm sure almost all my listeners know this, is that we've already spent the money, right? I mean, that's why we're reaching a debt limit. But this is money that had been allocated before. We're spending money that we had legislated well before this. That's right. This is not about reining in your spending. This is about refusing to pay your credit card bill when it comes. The, the spending already took place. The legislation that told the Treasury Department 
what tax rates to levy, what to spend money on. That was all passed by you know the, the normal legislative process. And so now it's only a question of, well, okay, are we going to allow Treasury to raise the money to pay for the things we've already told it to do? You know, the, the debt ceiling is not a policy thing. It's it's a weird artifact with obscure historical roots, but it it's kind of saying that you can commit to spend a bunch of stuff and then say, oh, well, but actually I won't pay for it. Are we going to need 60 votes in the Senate? If there's going to be any legislative solution, it's going to be in the House. It's going to involve the 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 House having a floor vote one way or another that and in which the debt ceiling gets raised. And otherwise, we're talking about extra legislative stuff. Then we're talking about legal end run by invoking the 14th Amendment, or we're talking about fun stuff like platinum coins and premium bonds, which no one in the Biden administration will talk about them, but we know that those are also on the table. I'm sorry, which the, the, the platinum coins, the trillion dollar yeah. coin? The platinum coin is one. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm not sure how many listeners know this, but there's a, a piece of legislation that was enacted. I don't know when, but it, it, it says that the, that the Treasury Department may issue platinum commemorative coins in any denomination it chooses. And that's all it says. And there's, you know, it was clearly intended to have coins that, that celebrate the Charles Lindbergh or something like that. But that's not <laughs> what the language says. And so you can mint a coin that says on it $1 trillion, and it's a $1 trillion coin. So the compromise here could be the trillion dollar coin, but the uh, very, very hard right-wing anti-Semitic Republicans say it has to be the Lindbergh coin. That's right. Uh, that, or maybe something, you know, we could mint a coin with Vladimir Putin's face on it, whatever. And, uh, um, <laughs> but it says $1 trillion. And then you very carefully carry the coin over to the Federal Reserve and deposit it at the U.S. government. Gus, do not lose this coin. That's right. Don't get a latte or an ice cream cone on the way. Yeah, I can see some, uh, you know, that this is this is a plot for a, uh, a Netflix uh, so don't movie. Give it to Mr. Bean. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then you have a trillion dollars in the, in the federal government's bank account, and it can then spend the money from the bank account. That only gets you so far, because we have, what, we're 31 trillion in debt? Is that where we are? Yeah, but... Well, first of all, there's nothing that says it has to be one uh, a trillion, and there's nothing that says it has to be just one coin. You can just keep minting trillion-dollar coins as long as necessary. And it doesn't even mean that the Fed has to print money, because the Fed can, to use the, the term of art here, can sterilize the impact by selling off some of the Fed. The Fed owns an enormous amount of U.S. government debt. So the Fed can just sell off U.S. government debt, which is actually, it's just borrowing through the back door. It's saying that that uh, instead of us selling bonds, we'll have the Fed sell some bonds, and everything just continues perfectly normally. So we're fine, you know. And it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, this is not what the legislation was intended for. But then the debt ceiling was never intended to allow extortionism by one one party either. So I don't see why this is not a possible solution. Well, uh, why do why do uh, uh, a lot of people think it's not possible? There is a question. Yellen has raised this. Uh, will the Fed accept the coin? 
So it does, it, this does depend upon the Fed accepting this as a valid deposit. But I think, again, the rule is who wants to be the person who crashed the world economy? So does Jerome Powell, chairman of the Fed, say, no, I refuse to accept the coin in the full knowledge that in so doing, he crashes the world economy? And I think the answer is probably not, but that is a concern. And it, look, it sounds silly. And if there's one thing that most government officials hate is, especially bankers hate, they hate sounding silly. I think there are objections, but there really are, they appear to be more sort of image and emotion rather than legal objections. Well, I mean, again, is it possible this goes to the court in any way? Yeah. Again, it might go to the court. So do you you want that? How long does the court take to decide? And yeah. I mean, any of these different odd proposals that you're, I, I shouldn't call them odd. What should I call them? Um, unorthodox, exotic. Thank you. Um, Thank you. That's, uh, yeah, heterodox. That's a good word, heterodox. Okay. I should mention that there's another one which actually sounds a little bit less silly than the coin. The trillion dollar bill. No, no, it's the, it's the no. premium bonds. And this is one that hasn't gotten as much public play, I think, because it's less fun to talk about, but it's, uh, but it's actually very clever. You know, what is a U.S. government bond? Uh, so a U.S. government bond, it says, you know, $1,000, let's say, on it, which is it's a $10 bond. So it's a, it's a promise to pay, to be repaid. When it comes to maturity 10 years from now, you will get your $1,000 back. But along the way, you will also receive interest on it. There's a coupon that's paid every year. Normally, the treasury issues bonds, uh, which have a coupon. And, you know, there's, a, the, there's a principal, which is $1,000, and there's the coupon, which is the amount it pays every year. And the coupon normally is supposed to be kind of close to what market interest rates are right now. So right now, with 10-year bonds yielding something a little under 4%, you might have a $1,000 bond that pays $40 a year, 4% each year during the life of the bond. But why not issue a bond, You know, a, 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 an old $1,000 bond comes due, and you issue a new $1,000 bond, except instead of paying $40 a year, it pays $100 a year. So the coupon is just way above the market interest rate. So then when, you, when the treasury auctions these things off, it doesn't let, you know, there's always an auction for bonds. The interest rate that you actually end up, you know, the price at which bonds are sold is never exactly the face value. So usually a little bit higher, a little bit lower. And so the, the effective interest rate is a little bit different. If you had a, a bond that had an extremely high coupon relative to actual interest rates out there, it would sell for a lot more than face value. So you go out there with a bond that says it's a $1,000 bond, but it pays so much interest that the treasury actually auctions it off uh, for $1,500. You can do that and you can say, well, look, we haven't increased the total amount of debt. We've just replaced an expiring $1,000 bond with a new $1,000 bond, except actually we've raised $1,500 in selling this thing. And well, we haven't increased the debt, right? Uh, And on paper, we haven't. In fact, you're borrowing money. In fact, you're raising money. So premium bonds 
are less obviously silly. If nothing else, they, I don't know whether I've managed to confuse all of the listeners here, but uh, they're sufficiently confusing that the the strange. Well, they all seem pedero-orthodox. Pedero, uh, Is that what you called them? Heterodox. Heterodox. Oh, like heterodox. heterodox. I'm sorry. I yeah. didn't, I I'm worried these days that if, if Ron DeSantis hears heterodox, he might think that it means something. Well, worse was heterodox, I guess. Yeah. He'd like heterodox, I think. I think so, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, are any of these uh, actually really being considered? Or are these your heterodox uh, suggestions that people are going pish posh? We can't do such an odd thing. We, we know that the 14th Amendment thing is, is being discussed. We know that because obviously – Administration is deliberately leaking the fact that it's being discussed. The others they don't want to talk about. You know, who are we talking about here? Administration economic officials. A lot of them are actually people I know. They're reading the same stuff. They're, they're reading the same blogs and newsletters. So they're aware of all of this stuff. And they're also aware of how catastrophic a default would be. So I think we have to assume that it, they are, in fact, being discussed, that everything is at least implicitly on the table. But they're also, since the Supreme Court has come before them, you're a little bit rolling the dice, right? Well, yeah, it's all rolling the dice. Every one of these possible solutions runs the possibility that the Supreme Court, or in the case of the coin, that the chairman of the Fed might um, say no. but. There is a game here, which is that put somebody in the position of being the last person who can force uh, the U.S. government into, into default on its debt. You know who I wouldn't want that to be? Samuel Alito. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> but the question is, are there, are, are there two Republicans on the court? who do not want to be responsible for blowing up the world. What, what a crazy situation we're in now. But as best I can make out, the, the, the game from the point of view of the Biden people is to frame this as, do you want to be the villains in this piece? Well, they did say they would not negotiate, right? That's right. They've said from the beginning. And also, once you do negotiate, then you have to negotiate the next time. That's because right. Because you've shown, after saying we will not negotiate, that we will negotiate. Yeah. So because we negotiated in 2011, you know, the question was, would they have gone off the cliff if at a certain point we said, no, we're keeping the same level of, you know, same tax rates. It's, yeah. And we're not agreeing to these cuts. And... If you want to go over the cliff, it's up to you. And the question was, would they have done that? We don't know, but it is a real question. With this group, this group, I, we can't be so sure of that. But on the other hand, if you do negotiate with them, that means you have to, you'll always have to negotiate with them when there's a Republican House or Senate and a Democratic president. Yeah. I mean, my assumption is that negotiating with McCarthy is simply a lost cause. There are times when I even suspect that Joe Biden might be welcoming this confrontation. They might be looking for an opportunity to uh, 
to show up how crazy the the other side is. Well, they look pretty crazy, and you know they seem to be unable not to play into looking crazy, yeah. uh, which is why he had the strongest midterm of any president since Bush after. 9-11 and before yeah. that Roosevelt in 1934. So yeah. that hand wasn't played well by the Republican Party with the president in the low 40s. Yeah. So, but who knows? I get lots and lots of mostly financial newsletters uh, who all have very confident predictions about what's going to happen. And the problem is they're, they're, they're all different. The last couple of days, I've my inbox has uh, for sure they will actually in fact reach a deal with the Republicans that will include some spending cuts, which I don't I don't believe for a minute, but that's what they're you know, or it's going to be Fourteenth Amendment, or not many people predicting the the other the premium bonds or the or the platinum coin, but I don't think you can rule those out as as possible answers as well. Well, I'm curious what the negotiation for lower spending would look like, and that would look like a victory for the Republicans. Yeah. And again, this is not something they would do when Trump was president. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Paul Krugman. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. We're back with Paul Krugman. Uh, l- let's talk about the accumulation of debt over the years and who's more responsible for that, Republican administrations or Democratic administrations. And I believe I know the answer to this. Okay. So, I mean, the first thing to say is that there are no hints in the markets or anything else that we have any sort of debt crisis. Right? It's not as if the debt is, in fact, a huge burden. Well, let's talk about that. What, what is, uh, make that case. Okay. Well, you know, the first thing you can say is, well, the U.S. government is able to borrow it, you know, until COVID, uh, actually until this recent bout of inflation, the U.S. government was able to borrow at very, very low interest rates. 
and they've gone up some now because the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to fight inflation, but they will probably go back down again afterwards. So there was no no hint that people were afraid to buy U.S. bonds because they thought we would default. The amount of interest that the federal government pays on its debt as a share of GDP is actually kind of low by historical standards because interest rates have been pretty really? low. And then you also want to bear in mind that the interest payments actually overstate the true burden because the real value of the debt gets eroded by inflation and also the economy gets bigger. So there, there's just no hint that we have a, you know, people took, say, oh, it's $31 trillion or you know, do your best Dr. Evil voice, $31 trillion. But, but you know, every, everything about the US economy is enormous. As a share of GDP, it's high, but it's not higher than, it's, it's more or less what it was at the end of World War II. Well, it's, we just won World War Two. Well, you know, we just fought a, a, a devastating pandemic. That's a pretty big chunk of the debt. Yep. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also uh, the point was there was no problem. There was no there was no crisis from the wartime debt. Our debt is you know, Japan has roughly twice as high a ratio of of debt to GDP as we do, and nothing, and they have no problems. Now, now, the growth after World War II, okay, yeah. remarkable growth. Yeah. You know, you always look at what were the highest tax rates for the upper right. brackets at that time. What were they? Oh, yeah. Well, for I guess under, there were a couple of, of quirks, but basically under Eisenhower, the top tax bracket was 91%. Not much money was actually taxed at that rate because there were ways to to shelter and reduce. But still, the fact of the matter is, even when once you take all of that into account, tax rates under that you know, raving Marxist Dwight Eisenhower were way higher than anything we've we've seen since. And it was also the the greatest boom in US history. There's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. People coming back from World War II trained to do kind certain kinds of things. We started educating. We actually started people giving free college, right? Yeah, we gave GI Bill is a big part of that. Uh, lots of infrastructure spending, housing, uh, housing but uh, the interstate highway system mm-hmm. was uh, well, that's that's Eisenhower. That was a good use of federal money, right? Yeah, yeah, and we didn't <laughs> we didn't try to do anything funny with it, you know, with uh, like somehow having a public private partnership or. Uh, you know, it, it would just plain had the government go out there and build roads. Actually, one of the things that's kind of funny right now is we, we don't know about artificial intelligence, uh, call it that, whatever it really is. Uh, and you have people who are simultaneously saying, this is going to lead to the greatest economic boom in the history of the human race. Oh, and also Social Security and Medicare are going to go bankrupt. And you can't actually believe both those things. If we're about to have an enormous boom, we're also going to have an enormous boom in tax revenue. So maybe, maybe we're on the verge of another great boom. Maybe not, but it's, uh, it's or maybe the robots will take all the social security money. You know, the robot or, or or just kill us all. Yeah, but the point is anyway that yeah the but I think that the main lesson from the 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 great post war boom is negative, uh, which is if you think that high tax rates are devastating and destroy incentives and kill the economy, 
how do you explain how well the economy did at a time when tax rates were really pretty high? Speaking of tax rates, uh, one, one of the things that kills me is that part of this uh, Republican package they, they put forward includes cuts in the new spending for the IRS, which would actually increase the debt. Their cuts in the new spending for the IRS would increase the debt. And let me ex explain that. Because the new spending, part of what it does is it hires a lot of sophisticated auditors because right now they don't have enough sophisticated auditors to look at the returns of high-income people. And so mainly what the IRS does now, they, they go after more people who are low-income and who are on the... Uh, earned income tax credit, then they go after high earners. A and part of this is to hire these auditors who can go after high income people. Also, a lot of the money, this is $80 billion, goes to new technology because the, the technology the IRS has now is ancient. Now, more people answering the phones and the place operates much, much more efficiently. Now, I love this. They're saying, the Republicans are saying, well, we don't like this because um, these new agents, these new IRS agents are armed. They're armed agents. And yeah, there are 200 new IRS agents who will be armed, but they're armed because they're going after people who are armed, like drug dealers and stuff like that. Who, who should pay their taxes. <laughs> now, what kills me here is that they're also saying, well, this, they're going to go after normal people, not just the low-income people now. Well, yeah, normal people should also pay their taxes. So if it's normal income, people should pay their taxes, and so should people over $400,000, which they're going to be focused more on because they have more complicated tax returns and they need these more sophisticated auditors and that's what this money is for. So when the CBO scores what the Republicans in the House did cut in this $80 billion, it actually costs the government about $220 billion or more in lost revenue. Is that correct? Yeah. And there, there are, and a lot of people I talk to think that's an underestimate that the CBO is is being deliberately conservative because we know that there's a lot of tax evasion out there. And the tax evasion that matters is by high income people because they're the people who should be paying a lot of taxes. Um, and so making it possible, giving the IRS the resources to, to, to go after tax evasion is a, is a money making deal for the government. And since tax evasion is overwhelmingly an issue for the 1%, the public should be cheering this on. Republicans are basically saying that Tax evaders are our kind of people, and uh, we want to protect. We want to protect them from enforcement. How should we reform our tax code to reward work, as we always should? But on the other hand, get rid of parts of the tax code that have been written in to make people at the very, very, very top pay nothing, nothing, nothing. That's that's a very. I mean. Tax, I know it's tax policy is 
Well, you got a Nobel is, Prize, man. Yeah, but I have to say, not in that. And I have to say, that's one of the areas where... <laughs> where uh... okay, no, I mean, seriously. Uh, that one of the areas where I actually do reach out to people who actually know something. Um, I, I think I'm okay on, on... I'm certainly okay on international trade and... and really good on uh, that. Yes. And health policy. But tax policy is... Because, you know, tax policy is not about fundamental rules about how the world works. It's about the insanely detailed specifics of legislation. The, the basic problem that we have with our tax system is that we've got it set up in ways that favor uh, unearned income. That is a, a unearned, not in the moral sense, but in the sense that it's not a paycheck. Uh, if you're a... Uh, uh, my favorite line of the movie Wall Street, if you're a 400000 a year working Wall Street stiff, drawing a salary, then there's really no, you know, you're paying the full freight. Or if, for example, you're a columnist and college professor with some textbook royalties, uh, you're paying the full freight of taxes. But if you're a private equity manager or a real estate developer, there are lots of ways that you can end up not paying the same tax rate. As, as people who are just working for a living in the ordinary sense. And those are the loopholes that we really should close. But I imagine those people contribute a lot to yeah, uh, but, certain committees. Yeah, they, no, this, and they're, they're, they contribute politically. There's the revolving door. It's always yep. upsetting, you know, even, even a, when a democratic administration, uh, if you ask, you know, what do people do next? An awful lot of them end up in, in the financial industry. It doesn't have to be explicit corruption. No, it's not at all. But you've been in the government and my gosh, you know your way around and have relationships and you're very valuable to us here. At yeah. And it, and it propagates backwards because you to, even if you're not consciously saying, I want to make policies that will be friendly to my future employers, it probably ends up happening. And also, uh, I'll just tell you my, my own experience, having had meetings you know, with, uh, particularly during the Obama years, you'd go in and would have these meetings where economists and officials and, and Wall Street types would be there. And the Wall Street types tend to be personally very impressive and they have uh, really good tailors. But it's not unbreakable. The fact of the matter is that Obama did actually quite significantly raise taxes on capital gains. That's one of the way, main ways we paid for Obamacare. So it's not as if these are you know, what, what, what the 1% wants, the 1% always gets. It's always going to be less than you want to, but that doesn't mean you can't get something. We also had, we had 60 Democratic senators at one point. Yeah, and- I know, but... But like we've learned, actually, Obama could have done a lot more if he'd been willing to just use reconciliation. Yes, I never quite understood that. Yeah. With all these explanations of why they couldn't or it would be, un, uh, it would be a problem. And then when Republicans took office, they immediately just rammed through all this stuff with 51 votes. So I, I don't think that that's a – well, and, and, you know, and, and Biden did. If you actually take a look at, at the, uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, that includes some significant uh, tax hikes. Uh, it includes a lot of stuff uh, that Republicans hated, and it was done with 50 Democratic senators plus Kamala Harris. 
you don't want to be completely naive and say, oh, here's the right thing to do, and surely Congress will do the right thing. But you don't want to give in to despair either. No. And one of one of the things, of course, that the Republican plan wants to do is uh, get rid of a lot of the, in the Inflation Reduction Act, yeah. including a lot of the spending on, on uh, addressing climate. Yeah, we'll crash the financial system unless you agree to helping us cook the planet. Is basically one way to put it. So yeah, more reasons why you just can't do this. This cannot be a negotiation. So Paul, um, just to uh, to end here, set up the ideal tax system uh, in the United States. Oh just wow! Me. <laughs> I mean, I don't. <laughs> there are all kinds, you know, and like I said, taxes are really complicated subject. But as best I can make out, there, there's a pretty good case for basically taxing all income the same, whatever, whether it's capital gains or, or investment income or salaries. But you want to encourage people to invest. Yeah, well... Yeah, there are lots of reasons. For See, yeah. and, and, and the trouble with it, if you tax different <laughs> types of income differently, then you create an awful lot of business for accountants and and people who can hire fancy that accountants. Is, that too. is true. And so probably all income should be taxed the same and all income should be taxed on a strongly progressive schedule. doesn't have to be um, you know, Eisenhower level taxes, but there's a there, – there's – pretty solid economic analysis that says that the highest income should be taxed as something like 70%, which by the way, is that that's not as outlandish as it seems because you want to have state and local taxes. Uh, so if you're, if you're a, a 400,000 a year working Wall Street stiff living in New York City, you actually are paying more than 50% on, on the last dollar of your income already. But there's a lot of income that's not being taxed like that that should be. Well, how do how do these uh, Bezos and uh, Musk's get away with paying nothing? Nothing is it that they just have a hundred billion dollars in assets and they borrow against that, and that's not income when you borrow it, and you can yeah. borrow ten million dollars and spend nine million of it. Unrealized and- capital gains. You have these assets, you you don't sell them, but uh, you can live off them anyway because you can put them up as security for borrowing and you live you live the lifestyle of uh, that that all that money allows, but you don't produce any reported income. But we can we can you know that doesn't have to be that way. There it is certainly possible to set up a system where one way or another ta- capital gains, actual capital gains are taxed whether or not you've actually sold the stuff. Isn't that easy to explain? I mean, isn't it easy? Couldn't the American people grasp that with these top examples and just you go? Would <laughs> I mean, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm almost starting to feel that Elon Musk, by being such an increasingly unpleasant person. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to go somewhere else. No, that he may be doing us a favor by making it easier. I mean, People, people kind of like Amazon, uh, and so the fact that Bezos gets away with a lot in taxes, it, it's hard to reconcile against that. But, but Musk, uh, to say the man who destroyed Twitter should also actually uh, pay his taxes might be an easier case to make. 
Am I am I talking about a wealth tax? Or? I I kind of like the wealth tax thing. There are other people who want it to be a uh, a market based uh, tax on cap- capital gains. I mean, tax policy can get insanely complicated, and I'm not sure that I know. It's it's all largely a question of what's easiest to enforce and administer. But wealth tax certainly is. Uh, I mean. The people, when Elizabeth Warren had her wealth tax plan, that was a plan that was put together by by some of the people I trust most to really understand this stuff. So, sure, you know, whatever, whatever works. Uh, and uh, if we agree on the principle, then we can probably find a way to make it work. Because I think we could do a lot more with our budget and with our economy if we did this right, if we did taxes in a logical, fair way. Yeah. Right? No, I, I, mean, I gotta <laughs> say, the, the, when, when all is said and done, if you want America to look like Denmark, which I do actually, uh, I mean, I, I, we, I wish we had that kind of really strong social safety net. Uh, you probably can't, e- even if we are much more successful at taxing the rich, that's not going to be enough money for that full range of benefits. And so if you look at countries that have really generous social safety nets, they also have high value added taxes to pay for them. And in the in the end, if we to get the kind of society that I want. Well, value added taxes do hurt people at the bottom, right? Yeah, value added tax is basically a national sales tax and it, everybody right. pays it. Uh, now, it's, it's well worth it if you're an ordinary citizen of a Nordic country, uh, what you get in the form of security and healthcare and, uh, and childcare, childcare, it's well worth the higher taxes you pay. But yeah, we can't get, do all of this without, without taxing the middle class. But you know, let's, for now, let's, let's start by going after the the fat cats. And uh, there's a significant amount of money there enough to pay for a lot of stuff. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul, thank you uh, for walking us through this. Uh, okay. Next month should be uh, should be interesting. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, and we'll uh, see if one of your, uh, you know, kind of unorthodox, uh, you know, yeah. heterodox solutions comes to pass. It will be a uh, a time of great uh, excitement and fun and absolute terror. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. 
Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.